Hello and welcome back to the Relationship Matters podcast. From the boardroom to the living room, we believe relationship matters. Hello, I'm your host, Katie Churchman. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be talking with Orse coach and agile expert, Terence Turpin. Terence has over 20 years of experience in technology and software development and is also a CRR USA staff member. Terence blends team coaching, supporting teams in clarifying, aligning, and co-creating as a diverse but single entity, and agility coaching, establishing healthy states of flow across an organization by coaching for alignment in structure, processes, environments, and relationships. Terence believes that the coaching process is one that generates understanding and alignment for the client, their environments, and those they interact with. In this episode, Terence and I discuss some of the synergies between ORSC and Agile coaching, how ORSC and Agile are two sides of the same coin, and how a blend of ORSC and Agile can enable organizations to master continuous change. So without further ado, I give you Terence Turpin. Well, Terence, it's wonderful to have you on the Relationship Matters podcast. I'm wondering if you can kick us off by talking to our listeners a bit about what Agile is and how it enables organizations to master continuous change. Agile at its fundamentals is just helping the organization to be flexible and to be adaptable to their market, to the situations that are occurring in front of them. Agile has a long history and where it really came to terms was with the Agile Manifesto in 2001. And that came about from a bunch of Agilists who were tired of a lot of very cumbersome processes. And they originally kind of were referred to as the lightweights. <laughs> and as they came together, came up with the Agile Manifesto, it was like, well, we really don't like referring to ourselves as lightweights. <laughs> and the term Agile was kind of adopted. And that's what everybody's been leveraging since then. Okay. And so some people say that Orsk and Agile are two sides of the same coin. Is this something that you believe? Yes. One of the things I find interesting is how they both were developed around the same time. Right. So that mid-90s, late-90s, both of these were starting to take form. And if you look at the Orsk program starting up there, early 2000s, and one of the key principles or Agile values is individuals and interactions over processes and tools. And I always find it interesting when we wear our Agile hat, the amount of time that we spend talking about processes and tools versus when you bring in a lot of the ORS skills, now you're really enabling the individuals and interactions to take place. That's interesting. So one's process tools and the other's much more individuals and interactions. And the processes and tools from Agile they're geared to help with the individuals and interactions. But oftentimes what you see is the practitioners are very focused on the tools oh, and not the underlying intention behind them. And I think with the ORSC, you're really putting the individuals and interactions at the forefront. So would you say the blending of the two then really makes it relational versus transactional? Then it becomes this sort of blended process of both. Yes, Bringing in a lot of the Agile tools, they're really helping the teams to get the stuff done. And the ORS tools is helping them, how are they with each other and helping get to the underlying items that will help them really raise their performance levels. 
Uh, this is really interesting. I come back to this, I think, in most podcasts this season, but it seems like there's the sort of being versus the doing. And we can't just have one or the other. We can't just stay in that being space and not do anything about what's happening in this organization or this team. But at the same time, we can become very orientated towards the doing and forget how we're being in relationship. The doing versus the being. Agile, we, we often talk a lot of the times about that growth that practitioners will go through from doing agile, starting to be agile. Mm. And I noticed on my coaching journey, a very similar conversations taking place of where you're doing coaching, you're asking powerful questions, you're holding the space, you've structured an agenda to help them find their options, explore the issues, and then evolving into being coaching, really being present with the practitioners, helping the issues to arise as the time is set forth. As the coach, you may notice the issues are there, but you notice the client, the team isn't willing to bring them forward. And you're, you're there. You help to hold the space for them. And I notice those parallels between both the agile and the coaching professions. One of the ways I think it complements from an ORSC side is when you're working with the agile team, and now you start to be a coach and allowing those issues to start to arise and working with them as it presents themselves to the teams. The team's adoption of the agile practices are more fluid and they're more easy to come across versus you're doing agile, you're doing coaching. It's very forced. <laughs> yeah. And you tend to have a lot more backlash. I know one team early on, you almost felt that they were just planting their feet down because they knew you were trying to take them somewhere they didn't want to go. They weren't even open to exploring it because they weren't ready. Yeah. I'm laughing because yeah. I've experienced that so many times. And I, I remember one of my mentors saying, if it feels too hard, if you're working too hard, you probably are. And it's when you're yeah. forcing through your own idea, essentially, of what they, they need. I run into that frequently where I will catch myself in the middle of a session and just be, okay, you're thinking too much. Be in the moment with them. You know, recognize what they're feeling, what they're going through. It's powerful. As an agile practitioner or scrum master and an ORS coach, do you have to sort of be obvious when you're switching those hats or have they become sort of one and the same for you now? I still tend to be conscious mm -hmm. of when I'm switching those hats, particularly where as the agilist, you have subject matter expertise and you need to be there to be able to help provide that to them. And going back to kind of that agile coach journey, that as you start stepping into the coaching space, the first reaction tends to be, oh, I need to be a coach. I need to stand back and let them discover it. And over time, I started to question the ethics of that because if you have the knowledge that's there that can help them, there's a certain obligation to make that accessible to them. It's still their choice on what they do with it, but you need to be able to make that available. And so if there's different agile practices, techniques, Okay, you bring that forward. One of the core things from at or from Orsk that really helped me was just naming it. What that situation is, name it, you know, whether it's the emotional field in the room to the misalignment between stakeholders and the team. And now you can start to work with it. 
And most of the time, once that's been named, the teams have the answer. I mean, I always smile because once it gets named, I feel like my job got easier. Yeah, you're so right. And it's, it's one of those things we know on an intuitive level. And yet sometimes we so often bypass. I remember during one of my all supervisions, my supervisor pointed out, wow, it got really awkward there for a moment. Did you notice that? And of, of course I noticed it, but I didn't say anything. <laughs> Who's that in the background? Oh, oh that's Joey. <laughs> we laugh because dogs are quiet all day until we get on a call. And actually one of them, she likes to stick her head up on the camera within the first five to 15 minutes and almost <laughs> without fail. And it cracks me up. <laughs> it's so funny. Whenever I'm on a podcast, Marita, her dog is always snoring in the background. It's like time. <laughs> it's, it's brilliant. <laughs> but talking about the emotional field, it's really interesting because so often it's it's the most sort of simple, instinctive offer that we can bring as coaches. And yet it can feel quite scary and quite bold to name it. And yet when you do, as you said, it can completely change, transform what's going on in that, that situation. That was definitely one of the hardest parts for me is I was going through certification. That was one of the core competencies that kept coming up was naming and working with the emotional field. And at times I found it to be pretty difficult because a couple of the teams I was working with was all male myself. And so you feel a little more intimidated naming, okay, the feelings. In fact, I got one team that actually refers to it as the F word. <laughs> and whenever feelings comes up, you know, I'll, I'll apologize. I go, get ready to name that F word again. <laughs> and a couple of the members on the team has even said, well, feelings don't matter. It's all just about getting the job done. And so going back into naming the hat, I believe Faith mentioned on an earlier podcast that we are experts in relationships. And so at times we have to name, okay, that feelings. And then how is that actually impacting how they're working? There's a lot of negativity in the room. Okay, how is that actually impacting their performance? If they don't trust one another, you know, they may still be able to get the job done, but they're going to move a lot slower because they can't actually communicate with each other. They got to check what each other says. They got to double check to make sure it's really true versus you can say something with somebody you're in a very trusting relationship with, and it can be wrong, but you kind of nod your head, you get what each other's saying, and you can move forward. So yeah, I, I find it really important to be able to name that emotional field and be able to work with that with them. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I remember finding it much easier to read the emotional field with couples than with teams. It felt so much more edgy to take in the F-bomb, as you called it, into yeah. an organization than it did say into an intimate relationship. Yeah, especially the complexities. Mm. So if you're working with a couple, they tend to read off of each other. They may be taking opposite reactions. They may be dancing together. But with a team, when you've got six people, seven, eight people in there, there's multiple things taking place. And that's a challenge that I, I'm not sure we fully appreciate when we step into team coaching of all the different emotions that are in there and helping that team to work with that and to be able to develop the skills so that 
they can name the emotional field themselves and they can start to work with it without the coach present. Yeah, because I'm sure there are so many teams that have this sense of leaving emotions at the door, but they're there whether they like it or not. And so I'm sure you found that transformative when you've really brought that to the surface. Yeah, well, we're taught we're professionals, you know, we, we don't have emotions. No. Well, <laughs> everybody's still got them. You, you still get pissed off at your boss. You still get upset with a coworker, the way they said something, something else, or you're still upset from something that happened at home. And now when somebody says something to you that just rubs you wrong, okay, you come across very different or you carry a different energy with you as you walk into the room and just needing to help create that space. So one of the things I look at that I try to help the teams to do is to build the oxygen in the room for them so that as a team, they're kind of in their own ecosphere. What do they need for that to be a healthy environment? Do they have the oxygen? Do they have the soil that they need? so that they can grow as a team, they can protect themselves, and they can interact with each other in a balanced manner. That's such a beautiful metaphor. Um, and it really brings into play the idea of that design team alliance, but in a more bountiful, rich way. What do we need to, to survive and thrive as a team? It's lovely. Do you have sort of some favorite or concepts or tools which you find most applicable or relevant in the agile world? One of my favorite ones is the paper constellations. Oh, interesting. It's, I find it works very well with the software teams mm -hmm. because we get at some of that underlying relationship that's at play. But by drawing systems diagrams, very similar to what they're used to working with as they're designing their software, except now they're looking at their team as this. It's on paper, so it's more abstract. So especially early on with a team when they're not quite comfortable working with the emotions, getting them to use to diagram how their team is, and most importantly, where they want the team to be. I found it really helps to break down a lot of the barriers because they see the conflict, they see the relationship challenges they have today. But now when they see that essentially everybody wants that same future, now it helps to build some of that trust. They start looking at each other being, well, they're not just being a jerk. We're actually aligned on what we want going forward. And now we can start discussing how do we get there? And it kind of helps them to be able to put the present, the past, and park it. So we can't start talking forward and what do we want to do, how we want to be with each other. That's so interesting because it's one of those tools that perhaps doesn't get used as much as others. And it certainly plays into a different learning style. I love talking things through and perhaps that's why that wasn't one of my favorites. Neither was a force field analysis. I didn't love all the, the numbers involved. <laughs> and yet I'm sure for some people that's very clear. As you said, it's like on paper, it's kind of like what they're doing already. It really plays to their strengths. Like the force field analysis works really well for the analytical minds. Yeah. It, when I learned that one, I'm like, well, I've always kind of done that. <laughs> it was just kind of, you know, how I thought. Yeah. It's so interesting when we think about that sort of the categories of all tools that work for those different learning styles, because not everyone's going to want to jump into a deep conversation um, and nor should they. That's not always the best way to, to handle these things. And I love that you surfaced that tool first. Really interesting. 
What other tools are some favorites of yours? There's an adaption of the outer roles, the inner roles okay. that I've used to really help the teams to discuss where they're having role challenges. So a lot of the times, one of the challenges I often see with the agile teams, they've been told, this is your new way of working. This is how you're going to do things by their leadership, by someone else. So most of them are going, we got to do these things. It's not so much the change because now they feel forced into it, but now how do they want to be when those spots, or I was a functional manager and now I'm told I have a team that's supposed to be self-organizing and there's a lot of internal conflict on how they want to be with that. And using kind of the outer roles, the inner roles to help the teams to have a discussion of how do they actually want to be in these roles? What's missing? Where do they feel that they have the gaps on the team? And so we'll just have everybody name. Here's all the roles that are in play. They go up, they dot vote the ones that they really want to talk about that they think there's the most challenges with. And then we just start having a conversation around is there a role conflict? Is there the role being poorly performed? And as they start to go through the different questions, they're identifying, okay, what's the real issue with this role? And in the process, they start to separate the individual from the role itself. And I've found on several times when they've done that without actually naming, separating the individual from the role, they have started to do that. And it helped to teach the team through practice how to have conversations with one another when they feel that somebody else on their team isn't pulling their weight, isn't meeting their expectations. And that's another one that I found to be very valuable with teams. So do they find sometimes with like the inner roles that there are pieces missing as well within that team? Yeah. A couple of the teams have actually mentioned that we need somebody to be more the celebratory. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're so busy and just getting tasks done that we never stop. We never have fun. Yeah. One of the teams also brought up the ghost roles and that was another one of those very nervous about bringing up, you know, now we're going to start talking about ghosts and they're going to really <laughs> think Terrence has lost his mind. <laughs> and it's one of those that your fear going into it is much stronger than the reality. Right. Because I was surprised that almost immediately all these ghosts kept getting thrown up on the board. And I'm like, that was a little quick. And there was several of them they talked about, including, you know, that architect that used to be around the team that drove everything their way and how, even though they had been off the team for a year, it was still impacting how they were doing everything. There was still a fear of taking ownership because they were going to do the wrong thing. And that architect was known to be very strong-willed, but it still had a very present. And again, it was very powerful that A, the team was able to name them very quickly. But now again, back to just naming it, by naming that architect was a ghost, they were able to talk about, well, how do they want to move past that? You know, what was the strengths that they actually brought to the team? But what are they ready to move on from? That's so interesting because you're right. That word ghosts alone feels a bit edgy for me to use in certain circumstances. But it seems time and time again, people have a really sort of powerful impact using that tool, even if just to educate a team about what a ghost is. Yeah. And one of the things I've found with coaching in general is whether it's the ghosts or it's the elephants in the room, people want to talk about most of the topics. 
it's sitting there, it's weighing on them. They just need somebody to help them create the space where they can have the conversations, they can deal with them. And so they can go back to their work and make the difference that they want to make. I love that. So it's our job to create the space for these conversations that are wanting to happen. Yeah. And again, that's where I go back to the agile coaches where we often fail is we get very hung up on, here's how you do Scrum. Here's how you do Kanban. Here's how you do all this work versus creating the space for that team to start establishing who are they, how do they want to be with each other, and how do they want to accomplish their work. So interesting. On the back of that, I often read about Agile and hear the idea that it's easy to understand and difficult to master. So is, is this something that you believe and also something that OSC, the OSC tools and the, the methodology can help with when it's held together? Yeah, I mean, Agile is easy to understand. It's hard to do. It goes back to all the items that are on the right side of the Agile manifesto. Again, the processes and tools. Mm-hmm. You know, the individuals and interactions on the left side, everything on the right are the things that would have been conditioned to do. And then everything on the left side is things that we know are important, but they tend not to be that first item. You know, when we're in an emergency, okay, we're not thinking about individuals interactions. We're thinking about processes and tools. We're thinking about following a plan. We're thinking about, okay, what's the contract? We're not thinking about the being my mind keeps going with that question is the perspective difference that Orsk brings. Right. And how you start looking at problems. Orsk helps to bring to the forefront the complexity, the adaption of the systems we're working with, and not taking the problems and making them very simple, but helping us to be with the complex situations, the relationships, the interactions, people. And how complex we are and giving us a perspective of being okay with that and being able to work with that complexity. And so as we go to the agile teams and working with the complexity of those teams, it it gives us the ability to work with them in a much better way, in a way that the teams can respond to. I love that. So you sort of step away from that tick box mentality of trying to get this right and actually what's needed here. Right. So for someone who's been an Agile coach for a long time and is sort of flirting with the idea of Orsk, what would be your advice? Because it is kind of a, at least for me, stepping into Orsk was a matrix moment. You know, once you step in and see systems, you can't (laughs) step back. So what advice would you give someone perhaps stepping into that? First off, jump straight in. (laughs) One of the things that I hear from everybody that comes through Orsk is one of the things they really love about it is... They come to the fundamentals class, they go to Orsk at work, and they're using the tools the very next day. So while a lot of this does feel very matrixy, it's very accessible as you step in. And it helps to, as all the elements build on each other, I find it does so in a very, a very comforting way. It doesn't overwhelm you. It doesn't flood you at any particular point. Now, that may just be my perspective on it, coming through it, and that may be from having always worked with teams, but I would say just jump straight into it and look at how you can leverage those tools 
with the systems that you're in. So if you're not actively around teams, you know, you primarily are doing leadership coaching, work with them there. Practice it at home with your kids. I came home, you know, helping my kids design an alliance, you know, helping them to figure out how they were wanting to work with the different pieces. And it's one of the things that I love about Orsk is I can use the skills here everywhere because everywhere we go, we are in systems. And so I don't feel that I ever have a skill set that I'm using at work, a skill set at home, a skill set there, or transitions through all of those. So true. So final question, what is the most important sort of synergy you've discovered between Agile and Orsk? The spirit of both of them, the spirit, the underlying intentions of what they're really trying to do from the early practitioners of Agile looking for a better way to help people get stuff done to the Orsk of a better way of helping people be in relationship with one another. They have that common underlying spirit that I think go very hand in hand of being in relationship with one another to get stuff done. And I find they're, they're a very powerful combination as they're linked together. It's brilliant. Thank you so much, Terrence. This was an absolute delight. And I'm sure I'm going to have lots of questions coming in after this podcast. Great. No problem. And I appreciated talking with you today. Thank you, Terrence. Thank you. A huge thanks to Terrence for that engaging discussion around Orsk and Agile. My key takeaways from today's episode are as follows. One of the key values of Agile is individuals and interactions over processes and tools. Blending Orsk coaching with Agile serves this value by putting individuals and their interactions at the forefront of any tool, process or discussion. Blending Orsk with Agile can help us to be with the complexity of relationship without trying to simplify it. When we bring an Orsk perspective to Agile teams, it can enable us to be with the complexity of relationship in a much more effective way. Orsk and Agile can enable teams to find alignment separate from the present and past and move to forward-thinking conversations around how do we want to be with each other? There's a difference between doing Agile or Orsk and being an Agile or Orsk coach. When one moves into the latter, being an Agile or Orsk coach, you are in the moment with the system in front of you and holding that system or team as inherently creative, generative and intelligent. For more information about Terence's work, do check out crrglobal.com and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss an episode. From the boardroom to the living room, we believe relationship matters.